Hello, and you're listening to GradCast, the official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University, recorded in the studios of CHRW. My name is Charlotte Paniton. I'm with my co-host, Roger Hudson. How are you doing? And we're joined today by Alexandre Desbiens-Brassard. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And so, uh, I mean, to get us started, uh, let us know uh, what, you're, uh, what you're doing here as a grad student and your research. Well, I am a PhD student uh, in my fourth year uh, in comparative literature. That's a program here at Western uh, in the Faculty of Arts and Humanities, the Department of Modern Languages and Literatures. And uh, my research is, uh, well, okay. Let's go like this. My research is on capitalist monster, or should I say techno-capitalist monster. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, basically, I'm looking at novels mostly, but also a few films uh, from uh, the U.S. and Canada in English and French. So, you know, it's comparative. So there's a lot of and, and. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm looking at those novels and films, popular for the most part, um, in order to see how they use monstrous figures that are created by technology. So think of a modern Frankenstein or Island of Dr. Moreau kind of deal uh, and see how they are using these monsters to talk about, criticize, comment uh, on our capitalist society and on the intersection between science and capitalism. It's absolutely fascinating. So uh, you s what is the uh, time frame in which you're studying the uh, criteria that you are? Well, my time frame is uh, from the 80s, like from technically 1979, okay. uh, but mostly it's the 80s onward. It's what they call uh, post, it's post, well, it's Reaganomics and it's, uh, you know, late capitalism and uh, post-Fordian is the word I was looking for. Fordian, so okay. post-Fordian capitalism. So it's very this late period. 1980 is the election of Ronald Reagan, Reaganomics, uh, and very much this also it's the point where computers start becoming mm -hmm. uh, very much a household item. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a point where technologies start taking really much uh, going high speed, hyperspeed, and capitalism and corporate uh, corporate culture also really changed from what was before, which was much more manufacturing and factories. And now we're getting into white-collar jobs and office drones. And so it was a period of a lot of economic anxieties, certain upheavals. And it's not really a period we've totally left necessarily. I mean, it depends on who you you listen to, For sure. but we are still dealing with the consequence of Reaganomics and these ideas. So that's why I'm really going from 1979 uh, up to, I think the most recent one is 2016. That's interesting. And so um, do you want to give us maybe an example of the sort of texts that you're looking at? You've mentioned filmed, uh, films and novels, but like more specifically, any titles that our listeners might be... Uh well, the one people know uh, for sure is Jurassic Park. Yes. So that's the big popular one. <laughs> I'm working mostly on the novel, but it's hard to talk about the novel without talking about the film, too, because mm -hmm. it's been so influential. Uh, but I've 
went back to the source to reading the original Michael Crichton novel from 1990. And I can tell you that the book, that the novel is, uh, sorry, the film is better than the novel. Um, oh, really? Uh, well, I personally think so. The novel is a lot more uh, clear on very much the message of the story and how it's about how doing science for corporate purposes is bad. That's pretty much the overarching theme. So the novel is much clearer on this and gives a lot more details, but the film has better characters and convey exposition much better. So from a pure like aesthetic standpoint, the film is better. But if you really want to get to the meat of the metaphors and the coding in it, then you need to read the novel. And that's more or less what you are more interested in. Exactly. Because, well, also because I've seen the movie like 30 times. So <laughs> I, I don't need any excuse to see that movie. Uh, so that's one of the big one I'm working with, that novel. I'm also working with uh, the movie Alien. Okay. The first one. This This one, people are always like, I don't really get it. But if you think about it, what is Alien? It's the story of oil workers that are on a mobile oil platform because that's what their ship is, an oil refinery. So they are these workers, these blue-collar workers that are sent by their corporation to retrieve a natural resource, i.e. the alien, and that they must die, so they must sacrifice their body for the corporate master to be able to uh, extract that resource and use it for profit. That is so rad. I'd never thought about it that way before. <laughs> yeah, but it's just like Jurassic Park. What is oil if not dead dinosaurs? That what? Is That's a very interesting connection. <laughs> so Jurassic Park is all about resource gathering. And so that's why it is on an island in Costa Rica. <laughs> and who built the park and died from the attack of the dinosaurs at the beginning? Costa Rican workers. Okay, so you're pointedly looking at, like, the implications of techno-capitalism here. Exactly. That's what I'm doing. I'm taking these stories and I'm going, this isn't just a monster story about cloned dinosaur or a parasite from outer space that stick to your face and then burst through your chest. It's also, they're also, I wouldn't say they're allegory because that would be to say that the author actually meant everything. Right. But they are coded as you know, stories about capitalism and our yeah. fear of technology and capitalism. I mean, uh, I'm also looking, like I said, at Canadian stuff. So I'm right. looking at Margaret Atwood, uh, Mad Adam trilogy. So Oryx and Craig, uh, The Year of the Flood and Mad Adam. That's her, uh, her trilogy. She published the first one in like 2003, I think, mm -hmm. something like that. And the last one about 10 years later or so. Okay. And it's basically about this future where genetic, uh, genetic engineering has gone like crazy, completely unregulated. So there's all kind of transgenic animals. And to the point where at one point it just blew up. Some dis disease got up and the whole world's dead. Like there's been a global pandemic. Wow. And then you have these survivors trying to fend and trying to explain how we got there. And it has a lot of the... Um, Attributes of, I don't know if you know, cyberpunk yes. literature. 
like the mega corporations living on compounds. Like corporations basically have their own little well, sovereign it's territory. It's starting to sound like modern day Google type of. It's it's pretty close to that. Ooh. Yes. And, I mean, Margaret Atwood would say that's exactly why her books are not science fiction, because she talks about stuff that's happening right now. Now, we could, <laughs> we could have an argument on that. But, um, so, yeah, so that's what I'm looking at. And so a lot of my uh, novels are, yeah, that's what they're about. Genetic engineering is a big one. Mm -hmm. But I'm also talking about, like, things like pharmaceutical and even, like, nanomachines. And so these are just, like, the most popular ones I'm using. And they are all made so that, yeah, I, I look at the capitalist, I would say, coding at the heart of all of these stories. And, and the genetics and nanotechnology, these are all on the cusp of science and in the modern day. And I guess a lot of these stories, like you're saying, Margaret Atwood's uh, uh, trilogy and the uh, yeah. Michael Creighton book from 1990, Jurassic Park, these would all be stories, I guess, when you really look into the metaphors that you are. Uh, of the evolving nature of, of capitalism and I guess the fear or emotions surrounding the potential takeover of these corporations. Exactly. I've always said that if you want to know what a society is afraid of, look at what they're writing mm -hmm. and what they're reading and what they're watching now more and more. And uh, that's exactly what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to see how all of this boils into... Uh, you know, all from all of these weird stories, we get a portrait of a certain kind of ideology, really. That's what I'm doing, ideological analysis. Right. And, you know, some of these novels, sometimes they contain contradictions. Like a lot of them, for example, will say mixing capitalism and science is bad, but they don't go so far as to, like, uh, propose a solution for what to replace the system with. Or they will, they will put a company as evil, but not attack the underlying bigger systems. So a lot of them kind of stop short. And the reason they stop short is that, well, they are also product of a capitalist system. Right. We all live in a capitalist society. So at one point we can criticize, but none of us really want it to fall. Because if it does, well, <laughs> we all go with it. So there's yeah. this really, like, of course, there's people that are subversive and there's people that are radical. But when you look at these popular stories, what is popular is rarely what is the most radical. Right. For a lot of reasons. But that doesn't mean that there's not something valuable there. And so, yeah, so that's what I'm looking at. And that's why I chose that period from the 80s onward. Because it's the so 1979 is just to accommodate Alien because it's really on the cusp, and the whole thing, and because you know ideologies don't follow decades very well, oh, sure. so it's just for me a a way to try to understand where we are, and this is the exact same thing I did with my master thesis is trying to look at the past and what we wrote in the past to understand where we are now. Yeah. Um. So then I'm, I'm wondering, because I know that you're looking at these speculative fiction texts, yeah. and I'm wondering if there's a difference or something valuable in speculative fiction that might not be found in more like overt forms of 
uh, you know, like anxiety and technoculture that you find in dystopian fiction, per se. So stuff that's already like post-apocalyptic or like specifically entrenched in this whole capitalism has gone as far as it can. Like, you know, these texts like Alien and, and Jurassic Park are not necessarily dystopian in any way. They're just kind of out there. So what draws you to those texts well, instead? Atwood is dystopian. Yes. Uh, well, mostly what draws me to these texts is that often dystopias are obvious. Okay. They are, you know, this is dystopia and something happened and this is what I'm talking about. To take the Hatwood example, Handmaid's Tale is about sexism. It's obvious. Like, to say that Handmaid's yeah. Tale is a dystopia about, you know, is a sexist dystopia is not very, like... There's nothing, as, as an academic, there's nothing, like... It's yeah. not as valuable as what you could be getting somewhere exactly. else. Exactly. So okay. I, I'm taking these... these stories that people like you said when i describe alien you're like i've never thought of it like that yeah and that's exactly what i'm trying to get to is i never thought about this because i think that a lot of stories do, do their ideological work subconsciously we don't think about it until one day we sit down and we go wait a minute like that whole thing about dinosaurs being oil right i wrote my entire thesis prospectus before i actually realized that <gasps> Like, I wrote an entire thesis perspective so that one day, once it was finished and I had done, I had defended it and I got a grade, sat down and I said, wait a minute, <laughs> that just happened to me. So, and also, one of the reasons I'm not using necessarily a lot of dystopian fiction is that a lot of dystopian fiction don't focus on the monster. They'll focus on humans and mm. human systems because that is what, makes a dystopia a dystopia. So to yeah. find a dystopia with a big focus on scientifically created monster was a little challenging. So that's why I'm not just into dystopia. And the third thing is that um, I also wanted to include French text in Quebec. Of course. And yeah. we don't have dystopia that much. Like just finding text with scientifically created monster was a challenge. Yeah, like there's not a very strong tradition of Quebecois sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, well, there there is a tradition, but yeah, it's not as strong as we could. And it's also not as popular. Right. And what I found, I found those books and I found a dystopian uh, series, but I ended up dropping the dystopian series because the monsters were all humans. Or okay. simply tools. They had no, like, they had no beast, no, like... So, like, that's one of the accesses of your... It's not only an exploration of polysemic texts through techno-capitalism, but it's also looking at the beasts and the monsters yeah. and the creatures that are in those texts. Exactly, because yeah. monsters are very much where I started. And uh, I started with a text that has nothing to do with my corpus. And it's a poem, actually, from Allen Ginsberg, Howell, a famous okay. by beat poet Allen Ginsberg from the 50s. And it's a poem that starts with Moloch. And it describes Moloch, the demons of steel. And it's basically Moloch is this demonic embodiment of capitalism. And that was my idea. I want to find Molochs. Okay. And then true, I had to like, you know, resize the corpus and some things I had to go out. Like, I wanted to deal with zombies, but zombies are their own thing. They've already been. <laughs> so, you know, if I did zombies in addition to everything else, and um, where was I? Monsters, uh, yeah. Yeah, monsters. Uh, 
And also monsters, what's very interesting is the monster comes from monstrare, which is a Latin word, which means to warn or to show. Okay. So monsters are etymologically warnings. So that's why I'm using uh, monsters. It's because I'm using them to show how these books are creating warnings. That's they insane. warn you about what could happen or what's happening. So, so the monster itself isn't actually the, the scariest part. It's what's to come because the monster or the, the story behind the monster is the warning for what is to come. Exactly. So the monster is just the ugly faces, but whats it's the tip of the iceberg, literally. Right. Wow. Very ugly, scaly iceberg. So, so throughout the course of from the 1980s or 1979 yeah. onward, um, have you, uh, both from English to French or just on a time-based scale, have you noticed any particular trends that go along with society or the culture that is, you know, that the, the story is written within? Well, yes. Uh, one of the biggest trends is that uh, computers get replaced as what we're afraid of. Uh, in the 80s, you get tons of movies and novels about the perils of computers. Wow. So, you, but this is like before, like this, this is like 2001 Space Odyssey type stuff? or No, I'm talking about Terminator. Oh, Robocop. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm talking uh, the whole literature of cyberpunk. Okay, so in in the period that you're studying. Yeah, in the period that I'm okay. studying, there's this whole, in, in the beginning, there's a lot of anxieties about robots and artificial intelligence because, you know, basically computers were being more and more, automation was getting more and more into daily life, but mm -hmm. we were still, most people still didn't, didn't work with a computer every day. They didn't have a computer in their pocket. Exactly. Nowadays, we have computers in our pocket. We are connected all the time. So by the 1990s, what starts to become the biggest fear is biotechnology, genetic engineering, cloning. Yeah. We cloned Dolly the sheep, what was it, in the late 90s. Yeah. And you had a lot of people worried about this. Not only about like, oh my God, what can you do with that? You're playing God, basically. But it's also about, wait a minute, if you clone, then we don't need reproduction. Then we're just going to, okay, we yeah. we don't need reproduction as in making babies. We'll just keep copying each other and then that changes. Yeah. So, yeah. so it almost seems as, as if like, as the scientific technology is brand new, it, there, it presents as a fear. But as it becomes more ingrained in our day-to-day -day lives, it, it, it dissip that fear dissipates and we actually grow to love or it becomes a part of who we are in a sense. But now I almost feel like things like AI or even biotechnology, they could be contrived as fears even today. They could. They could. And they are. They still are. But they have changed. We don't, we're not afraid of, say, Skynet, this big AI who sent a bunch of nukes anymore. Hmm. We're afraid of Google now. <laughs> We're afraid of Facebook. being spied on That's to right. the internet. We're afraid of losing ourselves in some kind of, you know, always connected nightmare. Technology evolves and our fear evolves, but the basic fear is always the same. We fear what we don't understand, but we also fear those things that look familiar, but that aren't. Mm. Have you ever heard of the uncanny valley effect? No. I haven't heard of that. Okay, so it's this idea when you watch, say, a computer-generated movie that the 
closer I get to a human, to an actual human, say I make a cartoon, and I draw Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is not scary. Mickey Mouse is cool. (laughs) But the more and more I draw a cartoon that is close to a human, which is what we do with computer imagery, at one point you get a point where it's so close to being a human, but not quite right, that it becomes scary. I think we've all experienced one form or another of that. Exactly. It's when something is almost perfect, Mm -hmm. but that little detail is off, our brain finds that more scary than something that is totally uh, and totally unfamiliar. It's almost like something that's trying to intrude into who we are in that sense. Exactly. So a human with one thing wrong is more scary than a huge blob of goo. (laughs) Because we know what a human is supposed to be. So when everything is almost wrong, your brain goes, wait a minute, am I wrong? Am I the one who's insane? And that's where it becomes scary because you start doubting yourself. You start Mm. doubting your own perception and that way lies madness. (laughs) So that's what I'm looking at is a system, capitalism has become so familiar that whenever these stories points out there's something wrong there, something that doesn't work in there, we go, wait a minute. And then we get scared. And I wish we could talk about this literally all day. You've blown my mind. I know that. Mine multiple times. In what sense would capitalism play? I'm just trying to return back to the issue of capitalism because we spent a long time on the the topic of the monster. But I'm just trying to blend in that that area of capitalism. I'm wondering if you could uh, uh, share, share any light on that. On capitalism? Well, the idea of capitalism is that it's everywhere, in every our lives, and it's very much invisible. So how is it scary? Because it seems like it's so ingrained into our day-to-day society that in in the sense of the monster, in the, in the other sense we were just talking about, it shouldn't be that scary. No, but I, I kind of make it as someone who's afraid of blood. Okay. They have blood in them all the time. Blood is everywhere. <laughs> blood is, but if you show them blood, then they get scared and they faint. Why? Because this should not be visible. And that's why capitalism is scary. Because when you think about it, capitalism is about, you know, selling your body in exchange, selling your labor in exchange for money and then using that money to buy stuff that was created by other labor. And, and the more you think the about it. the processes of alienation and exploitation and all that stuff. That comes exactly. Yeah. But... Wow. This is all invisible, especially in our capitalists today where all the workers are overseas. Right. We don't see them anymore. They're not in the, we're not in London in the 1800s where the factories are just down the river. And, you know, you just have to walk and you end up in a Charles Dickens novel. Right. It's now everything's hidden. Everything's overseas. We don't see it. Out of sight, out of mind, right? Exactly. So, so the moment I pull back the curtain... Right. Things get scary. So this is the whole idea of looking at fiction to see how that's manifest there, because then you're kind of ex- exposing what is so terrifying and it, how is it so accessible through fiction? Exactly. Because fiction is a way of facing our fears without danger. Right. Because when I open a book and I read it's about something scary, then I close the book and it's gone. The scary thing doesn't leave the book. Right. Unless you're in a movie. But yeah. yeah, but the scary thing doesn't leave the book. So fiction has always been a way that we kind of exercise our fears. Okay. Because once they're in the book, 
They can't go anywhere else. They're in the book. I just have to close the page, close the book, and they're gone. Such interesting perspectives, Alex. Thank you so much for, for sharing everything. Well, thank you for letting me share everything. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. I know that. Okay, and as we're winding down the episode, I think one of the questions that we might be able to kind of bring out to our audience as well is um, throughout the period that you're studying, have you found any sort of more obscure, lesser known uh, texts that are like real gems in terms of what they talk about for techno-capitalism and monsters and the grotesque? And um, if you want to share anything that you found, maybe for our listeners, if they're interested in looking at that. Yeah, uh, I just need to think about it a little but uh, I think that, well, for those who can uh, read French, I will say that if you can look at the, uh, it's a novel called Elise. Uh, wait, no, it's a series of novels called Elise. But the first one is called Zone 5. So Zone 5. And then you can see the whole series. It's a multi-author dystopian science fiction from Quebec. And it's all about capitalism and the fear of capitalism. And it's really very interesting because it's also all about a kind of dystopia we don't see. It's the dystopia of the North, of the Northern territories, of the North becoming like this race to the resources and all the problems that it brings. And it's also this kind of, um, this kind of fear that you see sometime of the American invading us, which you never see in a Hollywood movie. Right, because. absolutely. So that is quite interesting. Uh, otherwise, if you, uh, many of you probably know uh, the Canadian filmmaker uh, David Cronenberg. You've probably seen a few of them. But if you look at his early, early, early works, um, most of them were in Montreal, within Montreal. The, f the one I'm thinking about specifically is Shivers. But there's also, um, is it Scanners? Yeah, Scanners. Scanners, you might know on the internet for that Ed exploding guy with the mustache and the oh, Ed that explode. Yeah, okay. If you've never seen the movie, it's actually really, really interesting and it's worth the watch. It's gruesome, but it's worth the watch. Okay. And is, uh, yeah, Shivers was the one you did just before. No budget, but it's really interesting to see him try to exteriorize the, the anxieties of capitalism and bodies working bodies into body horror. Thank you so much for sharing these uh, suggestions for our viewers. I, I'm going to look them up, a couple of them myself tonight. Alex, you've shared so much fantastic information, a lot of really great perspectives, and I know I'm really appreciative and so are our listeners. Uh, my name is Roger Hudson, and I've been joined here by Charlotte Paniton. Uh, you can catch us every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on CHRW at 94.9. If you'd like to send us an email to get involved with the show at all, you can send us that email at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also catch uh, or, or watch any old or uh, new GradCast episodes at gradcast.ca. This has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Thank you very much and see you next week. Just a little announcement about the Western Research Forum, a multidisciplinary graduate research conference. It's a platform for graduate students to share their research to a wide audience. The theme this year is controversy, challenging the boundaries in research. This year, the Western Research Forum is on March 16, 2018 from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Physics and Astronomy Building. The keynote speaker is Shelley McKellar from the Department of History and Surgery, who will speak on the development of artificial hearts. For more information, you can go online and look up the Western Research Forum.
Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.